G'day. This is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about public policy. I'm Glenn Davis, and today we ask, is the public service competent? As the Australian statistician, I'd like to start again by apologising for the inconvenience many Australians experienced for many hours while attempting to complete the census online after 7.30pm on Tuesday night. To watch this you know, this, this B-grade attempt at trying to carry out the basics of a census is greatly frustrating. It is a failure by the ABS, by the relevant minister and the government. I know everyone has said to me, you know, will heads roll? Uh, which heads roll uh, where and when will be determined once the review is complete. On the 9th of August 2016, history was to be made. Australia was to do its first online census a census managed by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the ABS, a census held every five years with compulsory participation. But as many Australians know, things didn't go as planned. Vast numbers of Australians found themselves locked out of the census site. A denial-of-service attack and a series of problems brought the census to a sudden halt. The hashtag censusfail dominated social media, trending on Twitter, not just in Australia, but around the world. And fingers were pointed, as you just heard, at the ABS, at the systems provider IBM, at the government, at the former Labor government, and the community and public sector union blamed cutbacks they said had reduced staff at the ABS by 700 since the last census just five years earlier. So in the light of all this, we thought it timely to ask, Is the Australian public service competent? Was the ABS census fail a one-off? Or should we see it as part of a pattern of public service failure, underpinned by poor corporate memory, vague accountability processes, and perhaps poor leadership? Well, to discuss these questions, I'm pleased to welcome two guests to the studio today. Professor Helen Sullivan is Foundation Director of the Melbourne School of Government. Welcome, Helen. Hi, Glenn. And also joining us is Terry Moran, Chair of the Centre of Policy Development. Great to have you with us, Terry. Thanks, Glenn. Helen, your expertise and interest in public sector governance here in Australia and in the UK is a great starting point. What should we make of the issues at the ABS? A one-off or are we seeing wider problems in Australia's public service? Well, I think what's really interesting about this, and I speak as somebody who was actually at the Dubai airport on Tuesday evening, so even if I'd wanted to get online, I wouldn't have been able to. Um, What I think this tells us is something about our attitude to risk in the public sector. Um, I think lots of people pointed fingers in lots of different directions and politicians made of this... um, what they wanted to. But um, the interesting thing for me was the commentary by Peter Harris, uh, chair of the the Productivity Commission, who said, the digital revolution is here to stay. We have to find a way of coping with it. Um, We constantly say and are constantly told by academics and others that the public service should be uh, prepared to take risks. It should be prepared to fail. It should be prepared to fail in order to learn. Um, I think there's an argument to make that this was an opportunity to learn and an important opportunity that that there are learnings taken from this. But I think to connect it to 
a series of public service failures in the way that people have is is misplaced. I think there's something particular about uh, government and public services problems with IT that that is certainly worth looking into. Um, but I think what's interesting for this in this for me is what it says about the public and its attitude to public service risk. Terry, you've held very senior positions at both state and national level, including as head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Has the public service lost the plot? When I started as a junior public servant, having graduated from university, the ABS was widely admired, revered even, for its competence. It attracted remarkably good young graduates in statistics, economics and other disciplines, many of whom then went on to be quite celebrated and successful departmental heads. The new director of the ABS, appointed about a year ago, David Kalish, was prior to that a very successful head of the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which collected and published statistics in that area. And I don't, don't doubt his competence at all, but He's gone to the ABS at a time in which it's been ravaged by both sides of politics over time as they've taken out staff and failed to invest in the IT infrastructure of the ABS. It's a problem that afflicts other parts of government. It it affects uh, Centrelink, it affects the tax office uh, and various other areas of government and is symptomatic of uh, an unwillingness of the political class to put boundaries around their ambitions for what will be done so that those things which are to be done will be done at a sufficient standard to be credible. So I don't blame the poor people at the ABS who've been um, dealing with this. I blame successive governments which have denied investment in the ABS and also in this case the foolishness of outsourcing uh, so much of the collection task to the private sector without equipping the ABS to be as strong and informed a client of those companies as it would need to be in a very complex area like IT. So you buy the argument of the community and public sector union that significant cuts made a contribution to this outcome? I haven't read their full uh, argument, but I think if that's what they've said, there's some truth in it. And they go on to talk about massive workloads. Is it the case that workloads have risen across the public sector? Uh, Well, in the case of the ABS, there's been a gradual shedding of some of the surveys that they've done. Um, They've contracted. Each government has made a contribution to that. Uh, They're probably not collecting as much as they would wish to collect, and maybe that has accompanied the downsizing in their staff numbers over time. I'm not equipped with enough information to know. But the the ABS is absolutely essential to uh, active, competent economic management of, uh, of Australia. And whatever is wrong because of uh, the way it's been treated in the past has to be put right. Otherwise, we're frankly taking risks with the economy, with social policy, with environmental policy, all sorts of things. Professor Helen Sullivan, can you take up this theme of privatisation and what it means to lose significant numbers of senior staff and, of course, the corporate experience that goes with them? Well, I mean, it's clear that there's a a case to answer in terms of privatisation and and governments of all stripes' enthusiasm for it and their apparent inability to understand that some things can be privatised, some things can be contracted out, other things can't and shouldn't. Um, so I think there's 
There's an awful lot of learning already out there that we have about the success or otherwise of privatisation of contracting. I think what I don't buy, though, in Terry's comments is that somehow uh, the ABS is not culpable because it, it wasn't trained in being an informed client. Now, governments have been contracting for years. Um, you know, this is not something that's new. This is not something that we've never tried before. We have lots and lots of experience of contracting. So if the ABS wasn't able to be a good client, then the ABS ought to be looking at why that is the case. Um, it's not good enough to say that it's because they don't have enough staff, because they're not, they weren't trained to do that. Um, this is something that's core to how governments operate. And so that doesn't cut it for me. Terry, this question of competence as a client. I'm not saying that um, the the cuts in staff is directly linked to how effective the ABS was in managing contracts with a number of companies, but I am saying that, generally speaking, in Canberra, in the public service, there's a deficiency in how outsourcing is handled. So recently, uh, and you mentioned the Centre for Policy Development in your introduction, uh, last year, the Centre for Policy Development put out a publication called Grand Alibis, which looked at outsourcing in the area of employment services. And generally speaking, it failed, uh, employment services have failed to uh, really deliver services to those most in need of them. Vocational education and training is off the rails largely because of uh, an attempted outsourcing that was ill-conceived and poorly delivered. So all the time we see of things being proposed for outsourcing without evaluating whether in outsourcing you get a better result and without actually doing what used to be done with public sector contracts for pieces of infrastructure through public-private partnerships where you had to have two things the tendered price and the public sector comparator. The public sector comparator defining what a traditional build through public service means would, uh, would cost. We don't do that with outsourcing anymore. And I actually think that linked to the fact that the results aren't evaluated. We're just not checking up on what's happening. And we're not adequately addressing the problems that even become apparent through the administrative data is a minor scandal. Helen, how do we ensure that public sector organisations that outsource for preference or because they're instructed to have the capability to design the program properly to monitor it, to make it effective? Well, I think the skills and the capacities are there. I, don't, I think the, the, the public service is full of people who are very smart, very capable, um, but they just have too many things to do. Uh, they're responding constantly to tomorrow's big thing, uh, which always turns out to be something else by the time you get to tomorrow, of course. And so there isn't the necessary attention paid to doing the kinds of things that Terry was talking about. I mean, all of those things are absolutely what you would want to happen in a good process. Um, they don't happen, and partly they don't happen because there are too many other things pulling on public service time. I think where I'd want to go with that, though, is that one of the things that's always said about uh, the Australian public service is frank and fearless advice. And Terry, in his um, introduction, talked about uh, the range of ways in which the public service has been cut back, has been streamlined, has been subject to efficiency dividends and all of those things. The one group of people who could perhaps have intervened more effectively, I think, than they have are the secretaries, are the people at the most senior level. 
uh, because they are the people who have the ear of the minister. They are the people who are across the evidence. They are the people who know what we've tried before, what doesn't work. Um, And I just wonder if um, in the way in which we now employ senior people in the public service, there is a a point at which they've perhaps become less able to be frank and fearless. That's a different argument. I'd say that in Canberra, uh, there are several things happening. Firstly, all of the public service is not in conventional ministerial departments of state. In fact, the greater number of employees at the Commonwealth level as well as at the state level are employed under various acts of parliament uh, with their own governance structures, their own accountability arrangements and are, to an extent, sheltered from ministers. And in the way government works, that sheltering is actually done by the poor sods who work in the, uh, in the ministerial departments. That engagement with ministers, as you say, Helen, has become a lot more detailed and intensive at the Commonwealth level and also in states and territories, and that has been a distraction. And so I would argue that in Canberra, the public service now is essentially made up of two tribes, the economists and the generalists. The economists are hoping to relive the glory days of macro and macroeconomic reform commencing in the 80s and the debates which preceded it. And the generalists are skilled basically at feeding the beast in Parliament House rather than equipped with the management skills of all sorts, not just IT and outsourcing, but many areas as well, required to run complex service delivery arrangements. So when a public servant in a social policy department in Canberra looks out on the big service delivery systems operated by the states and territories, they're uncomprehending of what's involved. They simply are not up to date on where contemporary public sector management has got to. And contemporary public sector management includes as just one small bit IT and outsourcing. But it's a pretty important bit. Um, and There it's are a- lots of pretty important bits. <laughs> That's the point. So, Terry, Helen drew attention to the key role of secretaries in setting the tone Oh, yes. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I, I would say that, that from, my, from my experience, <laughs> secretaries are the meat in the sandwich. They're... <laughs> They're Mere sitting, victims, you're saying. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're, they're, they're sucked into this moor of Parliament House and all its obsessions and carry on. And they've got to track it and try and manage it and make sure that disaster doesn't overwhelm everything while also getting their head around the techniques of public policy, the techniques of public sector management. And so some secretaries are indeed philosopher kings. I think the current secretary of the Prime Minister's department is close to being a philosopher king, for example. Others struggle with the many and varied demands made on them on on a capability basis, but also workload basis, and they know there's a problem and they try to equip the senior executive groups around them with a combination of the knowledge and skills that will see the department or the agency through all the pressures that it faces. It's actually worse for secretaries than for a private sector CEO It's more complex, it's more demanding, it's more itty-bitty detailed as well as broad strategic. And so it's a wonder, actually, the country does as well as it does. I feel like I'm in an episode of Yes Minister. That's extraordinary. (laughs) That's the nicest thing you could have said. (laughs) I I recall being instructed by our outgoing secretary that you had to think of a secretary's role as a combination of chief policy advisor and personal valet to the minister. (laughs) 
Well, I wouldn't use that language, but I could understand why that person would have said it. But, but then, then, as Sir Arnold said to Sir Humphrey, now that Helen's brought it up, when Arnold took Sir Humphrey off to the club to let him know that he was resigning as Cabinet Secretary, and when Sir Humphrey said, Arnold, well, have you any view as to who your successor will be? And Arnold said, well, actually, Humpy, I'm not sure, because it comes down to the really important things. And Sir Humphrey said, well, Arnold, what would that be? And Arnold said, well, Humpy, to ask the right question. Horror came across Sir Humphrey's face, a momentary pause, and then he said with a smile, Arnold, just changing the subject entirely for a moment, what will you be doing in your retirement? (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, Arnold had a list of 30 things that he wanted to do, including... Uh, an appointment to Jamaica for the for the summer. That an enlightened successor would help him achieve. <laughs> yes, yes. Helen, as an experienced educator of senior public servants and someone training the next generation, when you look to the talent pool coming through to the public service and to the training we are providing, what are our issues there? Um, I think the issues are how we keep people engaged. There's no shortage of smart people who want to come and work in the public service. And in, a, in fact, we're in an era now where younger generations are much more interested in, in doing good and interesting things than they are in earning lots of money, which is you know good for people who work in, in the public service or the public sector more broadly. So we don't lack really capable potential recruits. I think what we do lack is opportunities to engage them successfully um, over a long period of time. So one of the things that we did in the School of Government a couple of years ago was a review of uh, the public sector workforce needs for the future. And one of the things that was extraordinary for us was the degree to which human resource planning, or whatever you want to call it, was separate from conversations that were going on about new policy demands, about new um, areas of activity. And so there seems to me to be a gap, uh, particularly at the state level, between what it is that people know they need to be doing, what the, the future demands are, and how they're planning for that in their workforce planning at all levels. So I think that, from a um, you know, a government point of view is a really important issue. I think from an educator's perspective, you know, our task is to recognise that although we're training people in the art of government, so much now of the art of government is done with other people. Um, So we're asking people to have skills not just in policy design, not just in management, but skills in collaboration, skills in engaging with communities, skills in um, being much more politically astute um, than perhaps they have been in the past. And that is very demanding. There's no question of that. So in your recent book, Imagining the 21st Public Service Workforce, you suggested we should be looking for quite different outcomes from the public sector to the future and therefore different sorts of people. That's right. I mean, we we think there are some real needs that the public sector hasn't quite got its head around. And those are uh, the, the much more human skills, if you like. So you know that public servants and the public sector is full of people who are technically expert, whether they be economists or engineers or whoever they are. Um, And we know that in the policy centres, we've got people with really great brains who can think conceptually. 
What we have much less confidence in is the ability of individuals to manage diverse groups of people, um, to even recruit diverse groups of people, but also to have those what we we sort of sort of pejoratively call soft skills, so the skills of collaboration, the skills of negotiation, the skills of um, of understanding how to influence. Um, those are things which we think are going to become much more important because government's going to take a step back. The public service is going to become much more an institution that commissions, that curates, and that demands different things to a traditional public service that has a much tighter control of everything. Sadly, I don't entirely agree with Helen, <laughs> which will surprise you. Firstly, there are lots of things going on at the moment. Uh, we're seeing a devolution to lower levels of most responsibility for delivering most services, where those services haven't in fact been outsourced or in a market sense put out to competition. And it's no longer the case that people sitting at the centre and ministerial departments are pulling strings that lead all the way down to a school or a TAFE institute or a hospital or a health centre or whatever. So that devolution is furthest advanced in Victoria, but it's happening now quite rapidly in New South Wales and in other states. And recent reforms at a national level have in some areas, like public hospitals, been designed to spur that devolution on. Secondly, that means that the public sector in its entirety is made up with people who are operating most of the workforce out there in big delivery systems under, in effect, contracts for delivery with people at the centre, which specify financial and other constraints. There's an overlay of regulatory activity. And doing that satisfactorily, if you're the head of a public hospital or a principal in a school, requires a different set of schools to do the policy work at the centre. That, in turn, means that the centres, particularly in Canberra, are shrinking and they'll shrink further because there's less for them to do beyond general policy, a strategy for delivery, um, figuring out what the standard price should be for different sorts of services, holding people accountable for delivering those services, supporting ministers in dealing with all of this, and supporting ministers making key appointments to boards and councils and so forth. So the Commonwealth is almost out of many areas of service delivery, but although is, the public... Isn't that, isn't that completely consistent with <coughs> Helen's argument about curation, though? Mm. Um, well, except that at the centre, you need skills in policy and strategic planning of the sort that you don't need to the same extent at all if you're running a hospital. And my final point would be that where we've been really committed as a public sector to economics as the wellspring of policy for 30 years, if not longer, I think because the public's out of love with that and we've really squeezed as much out of that particular lemon as we can get, we've got to face a debate uh, over the next few years about what is the central focus for policy for the country in respect at least of domestic policy. And while we wait, uh, the public service in Canberra with its uh, split between generalists and economists is a little bit at sea because it's not apparent where the politicians want to go. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there's there's certainly much more scepticism about economists and, and their role than there has been hitherto. I think many economists just feel that this is a, you know, a passing thing and, you know, okay. <laughs> so, it'll go, it'll move on somewhere else. So in his speech to the Australian National and New Zealand School of Government just earlier in August this year, um, Terry Moran, in fact, argued that 45 years ago you saw quite a different policy debate in Australia and a narrative about governance that has vanished. 
And I'm, I think I'm hearing you saying the same. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really key, and this is one of the things we, we tell our students all the time, um, the division between domestic and foreign policy, if it ever existed, no longer exists. You know, it is really not possible to think about any issue that is purely domestic, largely because there are, uh, in terms of some of the things we've already talked about, you know, there are so many global companies who now provide services in different ways in different states and, and territories that um, it becomes much harder to think about delivery in that way, but also the way in which we regulate. You know, that happens at a range of institutions and policy is also made at a range of levels, some of which are at the global level. So we need our public service workers of the future to be much more astute uh, in terms of how they understand what policy is and where the drivers are coming from. Um, and they also need, in our view, to be much more attuned to what's going on in this region than perhaps they have in the past. So um, it seems to me that, yes, there's a debate about economists, but there are much more interesting things to talk about. <laughs> And what's the role of schools of government nationally and internationally in framing a new narrative about what governance is around? Well, I think it's it's partly about giving people the skills and the tools to think critically, to think analytically. Um, it's also about reminding them that ultimately, when we talk about governing or governance, this is a values conversation. Um, and that one of the things that we've really got away from um, over the last 20, 25 years is a, a focus on values and what they mean and how those values constitute a, a narrative. Um, we've become much more focused on the, the technocratic, if we can just find the right algorithm, formula, uh, monitoring system, uh, then somehow that's going to give us the right answer rather than thinking about what are the outcomes that we're trying to achieve and how do we go about uh, getting there. And if that's about telling stories and our brains are much more responsive to uh, the telling of stories than they are to the processing of, of particular kinds of data, we turn data into stories, um, then that's the kind of narrative that we need to be encouraging people to develop, um, which is... It's different from the sort of vision thing that people become obsessed with. So, Terry, you've gone from leading the Commonwealth to leading the Centre for Policy Development. Why are think tanks important in thinking about the future of the public service? Well, they, they can more readily stand back and um, do their own analysis and reach their own conclusions about how things are going. And when they do evaluation of programs and their impact and whether they're working, they're doing something that's less common than it should be in the public service, frankly. But in putting material out, they're also making it easier for the traditional media to pick up on issues and uh, give a public airing to problems and what the options for change might be. So think tanks are in part an antidote to the decline of the traditional media in part, they're an antidote to uh, some of the deficiencies uh, that have emerged in public services as successive cutbacks have forced them to strip away a lot of their strategic capacity. Uh, and they're also a nice place for retired secretaries to hang out. <laughs> and Helen, is there a role for academics here? Oh, of course. There's always a role for, for academics, if only to point out to think tanks where their analysis is wrong and their, their research is a bit ropey. But more than that, I think the combination of different kinds of expertise, you know, whether it be think tanks, whether it be academics, whether it be really well-informed journalists, um, 
sources of commentary and reflection that are actively engaged in public policy conversations can only be good. Um, the worst thing would be if we did not have those conversations. And, um, and that does mean that academics have to think about the extent to which they're prepared to enter into debates and conversations and to engage with the media. And sometimes, you know, that's a hard thing for academics to do. Thank you. So as we turn to home, Terry, what do you expect the big learnings from Census 2016 have been? And how would you like to see that change flow through? Uh, well, there are several. The first big learning is if you're going to make a big sweeping change like this, you've got to both invest a lot in making the change and you've got to really double up on checking that it's all going to work and you don't roll it out until you've actually run it live with a large population, which you could conceivably do with a uh, say, a large survey that doesn't involve the entire population responding. Secondly, I think um, the denial of service issue is going to become more pressing as time goes on. And it won't just be teenagers in, in lounge rooms who are causing difficulties, it'll be governments who are causing difficulties. And so uh, by then, I hope, the ABS has found a way to assure us all that the data that we offer is indeed secure and that the process of getting it in itself isn't going to be maliciously disrupted uh, so easily as appears to have been the case this time. So the big challenge in this area that governments are facing beyond making the digital transition is going to be the security of their digital systems because the sophistication of what's possible is immense and it will just grow and grow over time. And we therefore probably can't have certainty that in migrating to a digital census, it's all going to be sweet and, mm. and pleasant and easy and secure in five years' time. Mm. And it's also, I agree with, with all of that. And, and what I think is fascinating, though, is the extent to which we as citizens are much more sceptical about giving the government data digitally um, whereas we're entirely prepared to hand over who knows what kinds of data um, in the virtual realm to Google, to you know any number of, um, of social media platforms. So I think there's something particular about our relationship with government that demands more. And that's absolutely right. But I think we also then need to think about ourselves as citizens and um, you know, why we are prepared to give away so much data in other forums that, that you know, maybe we think about more when, we, when we're engaging with government. Terry, what does this rather conspicuous public failure mean for credibility? Well, it, um, it has some impact, but I think it will pass. We have to wait until we see the results of a detailed inquiry into what actually went wrong. There's already an, a, a view emerging that the contractors really did make uh, some terrible mistakes, but time will tell whether that's the case. If they did, that will take some of the pressure off uh, the reputation of the ABS. But otherwise, we know from attitude surveys covering the public generally that the very group that the community has the highest regard for are the frontline service delivery people in the public sector. And their regard for those people is many times greater than it is for business leaders or, sadly, parliamentarians. Helen, a complicated story about why census goes wrong raises difficult questions about accountability. And we heard up front in this episode different voices saying we'll hold people accountable, heads will roll when only we know which heads. What, does, what should we learn about accountability from this? Uh, well, I think we should learn uh, or just be reminded that accountability is 
incredibly precious and that once you've uh, broken that accountability, it's very, very difficult to get back. Um, Terry alludes to the, uh, the the regard in which frontline workers are held. That's absolutely right. Uh, but we also know that all institutions, whether they're governmental, whether they're private sector, or even in Australia now the not-for-profit sector, um, are much less trusted than they used to be. And some of that is about accountability. Um, and so we need to recognise that this is a key issue, but also the more hands you have delivering a service, the more complex accountability will be. And so we need to think differently about how we hold people to account. So when the relevant minister says, I've only been the minister for three weeks, so count me out, that's a reasonable claim? No, I don't think that's a reasonable claim, but I do think we need to have a, a clearer understanding of the line of accountability and recognising that often that line is can be broken in many places. The minister's probably got a reasonable story in having been in the job three weeks and uh, if he'd been diligent he would have read folders and folders of briefs and tried to absorb them but who would have told him that the level of risk associated with denial of service uh, was so great as that he should stay up all night trying to figure out what to do. Um, but having said that many of the public sector institutions are by far the most respected institutions in Australia. The Reserve Bank, the ABC, the universities. Universities, universities. And even the Commonwealth Public Service itself is well regarded, not as highly as some of these others. Uh, people people love their local school. They love their hospital as well. They hate the systems which they're a part, but they love the local institutions. Most public sector people, and they're about 16% uh, of the total workforce in Australia working in public sector institutions of one sort or another, most of them are working in institutions that are highly respected, very highly respected. Think of the defence forces, think of the police forces, the firefighters, the nurses, the teachers. They're all, it's all as good as you could want, almost. So against that, I'm not too worried about the ABS stuff, given how it might turn out when the evaluation is properly done. Terry, you're living in fantasy land. These, these, these are not, um, the, the, you're drawing uh, relationships between absolutely people trust their local hospital or their local school or whatever it might be, but they do not trust uh, those things in the round. And and the predominant emotions that, that we're seeing, um, certainly as a result of the last federal election here in Australia, are fear and anxiety. And it's precisely because people don't know if they can trust institutions and certainly don't know how to hold institutions to account. And one of the great things that people are very fearful of is this notion that somehow they are all going to become responsible for their own services, for their own care, for their own education in ways that they never thought they would be and certainly um, don't align with the kind of system of government and public service that we have in this country. I think we're talking across purposes. I'm talking about where most public sector workers work and how those, those institutions and entities are respected. You're talking about a general malaise in our democracy, which I agree exists. But I think one is related to the other. There might be, but the general malaise is related more to the direction of policy and what it isn't delivering for people on the ground. So, Professor Helen Sullivan, a guarded optimism about the future of the public service? Oh, you have to be optimistic about the future of the public service. 
and Terry Moran. It's going to be exciting when we start to roll out all the evidence about all this stuff-ups and outsourcing. <laughs> People are going to say, well, why can't we really get the public service to do all these things? <laughs> <laughs> so what have we learned? Well, we've learned that the census failure is probably the result of a complex interplay of public and private factors. Cutbacks, yes. Changes in technology, yes. But also the difficulties of managing outsourcing and learning how to bring those skills into the public sector. We've learned that secretaries find themselves in very difficult positions, caught between the demands of politicians and the expectations of citizens. We've learned of changes in the public sector. In a sense, a stronger policy delivery differentiation with new skills required for both levels. And we've learned that experts can disagree. It's been a delight to talk to our guests today, Professor Helen Sullivan from the Melbourne School of Government and Terry Moran from the Centre for Policy Development. And thank you for your company. I'm Glyn Davis. Catch you next time on The Policy Shop. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au and remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.